And he said, yeah, it was still dangerous. We could get killed. He said, but by 1965, we realized that if we attempted to register to vote, yes, we could get killed, but we wouldn't get killed that night. We at least had a couple days to survive. And I was like, that ain't much better, right? He was like, no, it's not much better, but it was enough. Hello, I'm Tanya Scott-Williams, host of Why It Matters, Black Alabamians and the Vote, an Alabama Humanities Alliance podcast. And you just heard from Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries, associate professor of history at The Ohio State University and author of Bloody Lounds, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama's Black Belt. In this episode, Dr. Jeffries and I discuss how rural activists championed the ballot in one of the birthplaces of the Black Power movement. Join the conversation as we continue exploring Black Alabamians' long fight to fully engage in the electoral process. This conversation includes Project Poet Ms. Ashley M. Jones, who you'll hear throughout each episode. Let's join the conversation with Ms. Jones. Poem for Revolution from Malcolm, Martin, and all the rest. The boys and the girls are Black. The dolls and the trucks are Black. The mama and the daddy are Black. The road and the sky are Black. The Bibles and the bullets are black. The father and the son are black. The water and the fountain are black. The fire and hoses are black. The shoes are black. The mouths are black. The singers and the songs, black. The caskets and the weepers are black. The chaff and the wheat are black. The wind rolls blackly through the fields. Thank you so much for that, Ashley. I want to begin um, our conversation tonight with a bit of backdrop. We often talk about the challenges that Black folks have had getting, just getting access to the ballot, uh, our wins and our losses. But I want to come from a position of hope. I want to talk about that period um, right after emancipation. Mm. Let's look at the hope that African-Americans had during that time. And then then let's look at the reality of their conditions and specifically focusing on, on Lowndes County. Let's look at what happened after they had that period of hope and then what their reality was post uh, reconstruction. In 1865, Frederick Douglass, the radical abolitionist, the freedom fighter, um, the most photographed man in the 19th century, um, said in uh, shortly after emancipation that Emancipation, freedom will be meaningless unless black men have the vote, unless African-Americans have the vote. He understood that having a say in the political process, being able to shape on a daily basis the decisions that impact a person's life as a person of color, as an African-American, would be critical to freedom. Uh, And African-Americans as a whole shared this understanding. Local people recently emancipated, one foot in slavery, one foot out of slavery. They understood the power of the ballot. And they didn't need Frederick Douglass to tell him that. Right? Frederick Douglass had to explain that to white folk. Black folk on the ground, they understood the importance of the ballot on their own terms, even enslaved people. I mean, one of the things that's so critically important that we have to do as scholars, as historians, as, as, in looking back is we have to take ordinary people seriously as political thinkers, including ordinary black folk, including those who were recently enslaved and had just uh, been emancipated because all they had to do was look back at their experiences in slavery to understand the importance and the power of the ballot and being able to participate in in the political process. And so coming out of emancipation, African-Americans are organizing for various things. It's a broad spectrum, education, quality schools, decent housing, land ownership. But one of the things that they absolutely fought for was the ballot. And so when the Reconstruction Acts are finally passed, the 15th Amendment, of course, uh, allows for or, or uh, provides protections and grants of uh, the ballot to African-American men. But in 1867, you have the Reconstruction Acts. And the moment that they are passed, the moment that they become law, granting the ballot to black men in a place like Lowndes County, Alabama, within a few weeks time, you have 4,000 black men who will show up to register to vote. I mean, this is, I mean, these, these are folk, most of whom were still illiterate and they understood because they had been denied access to education, but they understood the power of the ballot and they begin voting the first chance they get. And they will continue to vote even when they know that their ballots are being stolen 
this is the, so they will vote all through reconstruction. And as we get a little closer to the turn of the 20th century and that vote was robbed, they're still showing up at the polls, which really speaks to uh, the, the importance that African-Americans attached to the ballot. This wasn't a 1965 phenomenon. This was an 1865 phenomenon. And they demonstrated their desire to secure the ballot and their value in it by their actions, which was including registering the vote and casting ballots for Republican, both black and white candidates. It's it's important, as, as, as you were saying, to, to realize that black folks knew what was going on. They yeah. understood that this is the way forward for them. And, and they took that very seriously. So carrying that hope forward um, in spite of the conditions that began to grow around this period after Reconstruction. You know, Lowndes County is described as bloody Lowndes for a reason. I mean, uh, anyone defying the, the racial code or anyone who uh, challenges the white power structure is faced with very real consequences, sometimes life-threatening um, conditions. What? Let's look at some of the tactics that were deployed. Let's look at some of those to control the Black community. And then also, you do such a great job in your book of laying out, you know, chronologically, as you say, uh, not only places, but people. Let's all look, also look at who were some of the people that were targeted and why. So it's important for us to acknowledge that just as with slavery, the cornerstone of slavery was violence. The cornerstone of Jim Crow, the cornerstone of freedom was violence as well. So everything uh, that was all of the mechanisms, both social mechanisms, social mechanisms, social control and political mechanisms and economic, all of it was maintained by the very real threat of violence. And not just, I mean, we're talking about death, right? The consequence for defying, as you pointed out, for, for racial transgressions, if you will, real or, or perceived was death. So that is important to, to acknowledge that this is the backdrop. This is, this is everybody understood that this could be the outcome. This is, this is what lynching was about. It was not only about persecuting an individual, it was about sending a message that you could be that individual at any time. And between 18, 1880 and 1930, a 50 year period in American history, two to three African-Americans are lynched every week, mostly in the South for 50 years. That is just a reign of terror that Black folk had to navigate and negotiate around. So while, yeah, there were sort of new economic systems like sharecropping and the creation of debt peonage, keeping people in debt to keep them bound to the line, the line bound to the land, you have new political, uh, you have new laws passed by white legislatures, legislators in Alabama, vagrancy laws, for example, that allowed African-Americans to be arrested on these sham crimes and then leased out convict leasing uh, to uh, large plantation owners, as well as to large factories uh, and mines right there in Birmingham. Uh, and so you have these economic law, political law supporting an economic system. And then of course you have the emergence of social segregation, Jim Crow. Uh, that's a mechanism, that was a mechanism of social control designed to reinforce a sense of superiority for white folk and inferiority in black folk, and also to justify the use of or the exploitation of black workers, right? Because if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're saying that it's okay to treat people differently, then why on earth would you pay them the same? Hmm. That's part of what segregation was. It wasn't just about creating these inconveniences. It was about reinforcing a social hierarchy. And all of that, gets undergirded and maintained by racial violence and racial terror. The, the, the key, the key to, to the voting, though, of course, was the 1901 Alabama state constitution. This was the disenfranchisement constitution. And every southern state between 1890 and 1910 rewrote its state constitution to rob African-Americans of the vote. And because of the 14th Amendment, which said, and the 15th Amendment, which said that you couldn't discriminate uh, on the basis of, a state couldn't discriminate on the basis of race, and you couldn't deny African-Americans the vote of African-American men, then all of these measures, grandfather clause, literacy tests, poll taxes, all of them were colorblind. This is all colorblind legislation, but it had a very specific uh, discriminatory intent that isn't just an interpretation on a part of us as historians, but all you have to do is look at the convention notes and records, and they're saying 
listen, we are calling this convention to take the vote away from African-Americans. And it was decisive. Lowndes County, Alabama goes from 5,000 or so uh, registered voters in 1900 before the Constitution is passed to 50 voters, 50 black voters in 1905. So we have this very real system in place with very real risks to one's life, to that of community and family. And the thing that really encourages me, and even today as we're looking at some of the challenges that we're currently having, encourages me is that in spite of all of that, there were people who were willing to organize, not necessarily publicly. You know, a lot of things were done secretly. Uh, a lot of strategies were uh, uh, underway, but those strategies were in place to push back against these discriminatory systems, these policies, all of these things that have been put in place to, to disenfranchise African-Americans, to maintain this um, system that benefited others. If you would please, can you describe some of those earlier strategies and then some of the people uh, that were behind some of those efforts? Yeah, you know, it's important for us to acknowledge when we think about the African-American experience, whether we're talking specifically about Lowndes County and Alabama or more broadly, the African-American experience, it's important for us to acknowledge and recognize the persistence of resistance. Yeah. There is never a time where African-Americans are not fighting for full equality, for what I call freedom rights, their basic civil rights and human rights, and fighting against white supremacy. I mean, that's 1619 to the present. There is never a time where you don't have black folk fighting. It doesn't always rise to the level of a public social movement, but they're always fighting, they're always resisting. And so when we look at the Jim Crow era, like what was happening there? How was that occurring? What was, what was taking place then? And what were they doing? Well, as I just said, in 1901, when you have the Alabama state constitution, a new disenfranchisement constitution, one of the things we don't see is African-Americans in places like Lowndes County, Alabama. Birmingham's a little different. Mobile's a little bit different. Uh, Atlanta's a little bit different. Uh, but we don't see in Lowndes County, Alabama, is African-Americans attempting to register to vote. It wasn't because they suddenly lost interest in voting. Uh, it wasn't because they thought, eh, what's the point of it? They knew that if they attempted to go down to the county courthouse, that they would be killed. And even if they could somehow manage to register to vote, who were they going to vote for in a single party state where the only party in town was the Democratic Party and black folk couldn't even get candidates on the Democratic primary? And so they had nobody to vote for. But rather than say, well, oh, well, there's nothing for us to do, what they then do, and this is so important to understanding the point that you made, Tanya, about sort of organizing on the ground and people constantly organizing, is they, they, they redirect their energy. They never give up on the importance and the value of the vote, but they realize that there's not much they can do right now and survive about it. And so they direct their energies towards what? Toward developing and improving black schools, both public schools and in a place like Lowndes County, Alabama, bringing in resources, developing independent school, the Calhoun School and the Calhoun Land Trust investing in trying to become independent black landowners that we see through the Calhoun Land Trust down in Calhoun, Alabama. And so these are the types of things that we see African-Americans around the turn of the century doing, and it continues forward, right? It's just not one generation that decides like, hey, we're gonna do something everybody. No, everybody, every generation, folk are constantly engaging in this struggle. And we see it by the time you get to the 1930s and the depression, we're seeing folk in Lowndes County, Alabama, writing letters to the governor and to the NAACP saying, hey, we need some resources, we need some help. In the 1940s, late 1940s, writing letters, not just to New York and the NAACP, but writing letters to uh, the Montgomery branch of the NAACP right next door. And guess who's writing back? Rosa Parks, because she's the secretary of the NAACP saying, hey, how can we help? What do we need to do? Can we investigate some of this stuff? And so there's this constant engagement of local people on the ground that becomes really intergenerational in terms of people trying to build, people trying to survive, and people trying to find ways and avenues and openings in order to make their lives a little bit more better, a little easier, a little bit more equal. You mentioned the Calhoun Land Trust. So two things I wanna point out is black folks owned a lot of land in those areas. Uh, there were a lot of black landowners in, in uh, Calhoun, as you mentioned, and other areas. Uh, but the Calhoun Land Trust, tell us a little bit about that and what that means. Well, it's interesting uh, because in the late 1880s, early 1890s, uh, there was a series of lynchings in Lowndes County, Alabama. Uh, Bloody Lowndes, as you mentioned, it was a violent place. 
Uh, and there's a pair of lynchings that happens. And by then, uh, Booker T. Washington had come down from Hampton and was the principal of Tuskegee University um, and right up the road in Macon. Uh, and you have, and, and, and Folk and Lounge County knew about this, right? They knew that Tuskegee existed. They knew it was there. They knew it was just up the road, if you will. And after this series of lynchings, the folk in uh, Lowndes County affiliated with the church, Raymond Baptist Church, they, in response, they can't go to the police. They can't go to the state, right? All they can do is, is what they can do for themselves as a community. And so what do they do? They write to Booker T. Washington and they say, you know, we just, we, we've just experienced this racial terror, right? And we realize that we're going to have to defend ourselves against that. But we also realize we got to do some institution building to help us get out of here and help us survive and help us prepare the next generation of young people to deal with this madness. And, and they said, could you, could you send us some help? And Washington forwards that letter on. It winds up, you know, heading north, literally to Connecticut, uh, gets passed on to some teachers and some, some you know, missionary, te missionary teachers, if you will, in Connecticut, two white women who then wind up coming down and launching this Calhoun school, this Calhoun land trust. And it wasn't the, the phenomenal thing about it. And this goes to the point of black land ownership. And because Lowndes County, we're talking about a rural community, a rural area, rural county, is they start the school, the Calhoun school. But they also, at the insistence and er, at the insistence of, of black folk on the ground, they say, we want a school, but we also want land. Can you help us get some land? And so they wind up purchasing for the Calhoun, the Calhoun school winds up getting some investments and in purchasing plantation land from the NJ Bell plantation, large plantation down in that Fort deposit area. And they purchase this land and that begins and creates this independent black landowning community, the Calhoun school, which significantly serves as the model for 30 years later, 40 years later for the New Deal resettlement communities, not just in white, which becomes a black community in Whitehall, but the New Deal resettlement communities throughout the South are patterned after the successful creation of these landowners, of these small landowning farmers down in Calhoun, which is so critically important when we think about uh, the freedom struggle moving forward because you're creating an independent economic base. Nobody could live com completely autonomously in the, uh, uh, in the racialized, uh, racially stratified world, but they had greater economic, in because they had greater economic independence, they had a little bit more freedom. And they exercised that freedom uh, to challenge white supremacy and discrimination as long as they own that land. What we're discovering as we move along in this series, or rather for some of us is rediscovering or remembering, is that there is a pattern about a lot of the movements that happen in the South and Alabama in particular. A lot of these accomplishments, a lot of these movements towards um, organizing had huge impacts, that ripple effects that eventually um, made changes all over the nation. And during the second half of our conversation, we're gonna talk about what that looks like, uh, especially in a very real way uh, for political parties. And some of them uh, that really went against what was the norm at the time. Um, uh, we're talking specifically about nonviolence. But we're at about the halfway mark in our conversation. So what I want to do right now is bring Ms. Ashley Jones back on. Uh, she has another piece for us this afternoon that she's going to share. And then we're going to wrap up our conversation with this second half, talking about what that radical movement looks like. Thank you. Um, I've really been enjoying the conversation so far. And it actually made me change the poem I was going to read because I think this one um, will apply to what y'all are about to talk about. Um, this piece that I'm going to read talks about this phenomenon that I've always thought was true as somebody from Alabama in that everybody everywhere has some connection here. And we're about to learn, I think, that even the Black Panthers have a connection here. Um, and so this poem talks about that, but also the fact that um, these issues that Dr. Jeffries has described um, of discrimination, these things exist all over our country. Um, and some people mistakenly think that they only exist or existed in the South. So that poem, this poem kind of addresses all of that. It's called All Y'all Really From Alabama, and it begins with an epigraph from Dr. King. The straitjackets of race prejudice and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Why We Can't Wait. 
This here, the cradle of this here nation. Everywhere you look, roots run right back south. Every vein filled with red dirt, blood, cotton. We the dirty words you spit out your mouth. Mason Dixon is an imagined line. You can theorize it or wish it real, but it's the same old ghost, see-through, benign. All y'all from Alabama. We the wheel turning cotton to make the nation move. We the scapegoat in a land built from death. No longitude or latitude disproves the truth of founding father's sacred oath. We hold these truths like dark snuff in our jaw. Black oppressions, not happenstance, it's law. Thank you for that, Ashley. Thank you. So we are looking now to how Lowndes becomes the epicenter of a grassroots social movement. Uh, it's not something that happens overnight, but it's something that's building steadily and slowly. So now, Dr. Jeffries, Lowndes County becomes the epicenter of this movement. It, you say in your book that um, the freedom struggle in Lowndes is, is distinct. Can you share with us exactly what that was and then compare that to what eventually we understood to be the national movement? So one of the things that's important to think about when we think about the civil rights movement is to think about it as a series, as, as really like a sort of a constellation, like a constellation of stars, if you will. Sometimes we think about it as sort of a singular, as like the sun, it's just one thing. But the movement is really a constellation. It's many things, many, and each of those stars represents a different community. And those communities, as we think about, we look in the sky and at a dark night, you see different stars burning at different intensities. Some stars are burning a little bit more brightly than other stars, but they're all burning. All, there's always resistance in all of those car stars. There's always communities organizing. But some of those that are burning a little bit brightly are, bur are organizing a little bit more, a little bit more public. Lowndes County, there was very little public organizing, even as the even as the civil rights movement around it was really beginning. In 1955, when you had the Montgomery bus boycott, there had nothing going on in Lowndes County, right? In Birmingham, Alabama, in 63, when you had the Children's Crusade, going nothing going on in Alabama, I mean, down in Lowndes County. Uh, but it didn't mean that the people weren't looking for opportunities. And when that opportunity did present itself, as people began organizing in 1965 in Dallas County over in Selma, then black folk in Lowndes County like, you know what? I think there's something that we can do here. This might be opportunity to make something happen. I remember interviewing uh, John Hewlett, who was so central to the movement there, became the first black sheriff elected in 1970 and the first black probate judge. But he was, he was really the centerpiece, the chief organizer in the movement. I remember asking him uh, in an interview before he had passed away when I was writing a book. I said, well, what was so different about 1965 that that you were able to sort of get people to attempt to register to vote in 1965 that you weren't able to do in 64 or 63 or 55 or 45. I was like, it was still dangerous. And he said, yeah, it was still dangerous. We could get killed. He said, but by 1965, we realized that if we attempted to register to vote, yes, we could get killed, but we wouldn't get killed that night. We at least had a couple days to survive. And I was like, that ain't much better, right? And he was like, no, it's not much better, but it was enough. Because given the history of terror in the community, people, what had paralyzed people was the reality that the instant you tried to do something, you would be killed. And that was the mistake of white folk, right? They gave black folk just enough breathing room to say, you know what, we could do this and we may just survive. And what comes out of it then eventually, and this is what really I think is so phenomenal and amazing about Lowndes County, and we'll talk about a little bit more, is that the kind of politics that comes out of it. It isn't just a sort of a replication of the traditional American politics. It just mobilize people and get them to the vote, get them to the ballot box, even if they're black. Like that's that's a radical thing in a, in a state uh, where you have had absolute disenfranchisement. There are no registered voters in Lowndes County in 1965, right? Zero, 5,122 are eligible. Not a single one is registered to vote. But what happens is not just the creation with a partnership with SNCC and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, not just creation of sort of a voter registration campaign, but the creation of a new kind of politics. And that's what makes it so different. 
Well, let's lead right into that conversation. What is this new kind of politics? Tell us about that. Well, I call it freedom politics. And what it really is, is a combination of the freedom rights goals, the broad civil rights and human rights goals that we began this conversation with, those goals for freedom that African-Americans at the daybreak of freedom had set for themselves, access to quality education, decent housing, land ownership, personal safety, like those goals never change. Black folk are, are, are consistently fighting for those with different degrees of intensity, the constellation of the stars, 1901, you can't go down to the county courthouse and attempt to register to vote anymore. So we're not seeing an emphasis on voting rights. They just shift and focus on education and land ownership. But in 1965, as we're beginning to see voting rights as a possibility in states like Alabama, voting rights campaign in Selma and other places, then it becomes a possibility and we see a shift and an emphasis uh, on securing the ballot. So what we're seeing with the new kind of politics that emerges specifically in Lowndes County is the comp is connecting these freedom rights goals, those goals that black folk have been fighting for literally for generations, for 100 years since emancipation with, and this is what makes Lowndes County unique, with the organizing principles, the small d democratic organizing principles of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Because SNCC moves in, and when SNCC moves in to help local people on the ground, organize a voting rights campaign, they bring with them a set of organizing principles that they embraced, internalized, and adopted from the radical Democratic veteran, SNCC or veteran organizer, civil rights organizer, Ella Baker. And so Lowndes County is so unique because Lowndes County is this combination of applying Ella Baker's participatory Democratic principles for organizing people to electoral politics. And because of that, we not we don't just have black folk attempting to register to vote because of that we have black folks saying it's not enough just to cast a ballot who are we going to vote for so we're going to create our own independent political party and we're not even going to leave it at that we're going to create a political party where it doesn't matter who the elect who we nominate for office because whoever it is they're going to have to be beholden to our interests as a people and wealth whiteness and previous political experience are not gonna be the prerequisites for running for office. Commitment to the people is what is going to be the sole prerequisite for running for office. And those are the folk who you get. And that leads to a different kind of politics. That's a fundamentally different kind of politics than traditional American politics that privilege wealth, whiteness, and pre previous political experience. So the people determined this is what's going to work for us. This is unique to our area. This is how we're gonna move our efforts, and our vision forward. For this for this area, then we have organizations you mentioned, SNCC, uh, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. Tell us a little bit about about that and the impact that it had. And then I want to move into what eventually became uh, that came out of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization that had ripple effects across the country. Well, the there's there's a couple of movement organizations that emerge in Lowndes County, and certainly uh, the first movement organization that and this is. When you move from protest to actual social movement organization, you got to look for one of the key elements is a movement organization. And the first movement organization to emerge in Lowndes County is the Lowndes County Christian Movement for Human Rights. And that is established in March of 1965. And they coordinate voting rights activities. But once you have the Voting Rights Act passed, which occurs in August of 1965, then SNCC organizers who had been on the ground helping mobilize African-Americans, get, the, get them to the county courthouse to attempt to register to vote. Then SNCC organizers, a fellow by the name of Cortland Cox, who's still organizing now some 50 years later, 60 years later, uh, he said, you know, what would it profit a man or a woman to gain the vote and not be able to control it? And the folk on the ground, like, you know, you got a good point there. You know, Frank Miles Jr., one of the local activists, said it didn't make any sense for us to join the Democratic Party when they had been the ones that had done the beating in the county, had done the killing in the county and beat our heads. And so they're looking at this pragmatically and logically and saying, what else can we do? And then this is the partnership. This is why the partnership between local people and outside organizers becomes so important because the local people had the energy and the desire. The outside folk, the, ex the organizers had the expertise. And so SNCC organizers turned to their director to their division of research, which is really just one dude, right, who has some, who has some law books. And he's combing through the law books. And he says, there's this law in the book that says that you can create your own independent political party on a county basis, on a countywide basis. This is an old book from the Redemption Era, how, how white Alabamians were going to undermine Reconstruction. And they were like, yo, you can form your own independent political party. 
and SNCC in that tradition of sort of democratic organizing and not we're not going to we're not going to tell you what to do, but we're going to give you some new options. They brought that idea to the people on the ground and they said, look, local folk, John Hewlett, uh, LZ McGill, Lillian McGill, y'all can do this. Is this what you want to do? And they said, if you can help us pull it off, we're all in. And that leads in all in December of 1965 to the formation of the Lowndes County Freedom Organization. And they would have their first nomination convention in May of 1966, in which they nominate seven candidates for local office. They were going to take over control of the county courthouse so that black folk in the county would have a say in the decisions that affected their lives. And because Lowndes, because of the high rate of adult illiteracy in Alabama, every political party had to have a ballot symbol. In Lowndes County, Alabama, they chose a snarling Black Panther, partly because Panthers were indigenous to the Southeast in Alabama. These were rural folk, and they understood, too, the relationship between Panthers and Roosters. And a rooster uh, was the symbol of the Democratic Party, a rooster with the slogan, white supremacy for the right. And they said, we know what, what, what cats do to roosters. They chase those roosters and they devour those roosters. And they said, come election day in 19th, November 1966, that's exactly what that black cat is going to do. It's going to devour that rooster and we're going to be free because of it. It's, it's interesting. Um, growing up as a child, as I'm hearing, learning about uh, this period in American history, interestingly enough, I grew up in a small town and there were panthers supposedly in the area that I lived in. Now, thankfully, I never saw one and I never heard one. But I do remember uh, on you know several occasions, my grandmother would mention how sometimes as they're walking through the woods or they're going and visiting folks at night, they'd have to be mindful of the panthers. Yeah. So I understood the danger lurking in the woods and, and the strength of the animal. Yeah. And then uh, later, uh, immediately was able to associate that <clears throat> with what I understood to be uh, the Black Panther Party movement and then understanding to some degree uh, why this symbol was chosen for this organization. So it's really interesting how, you know, this is, I grew up in the South. So uh, understanding all of this, these things from the wild and how these things have messages yeah. uh, that are really impactful. Yeah. Um, so the the Black Panther Party movement, you mentioned that it it springs from this. Mm. Let's look at some of the blueprint that they were able to take from what was happening in Lowndes County. What was what was the most inspiring for them, and then how did this play itself out uh, on the West Coast? I think there's a couple of things that come out of Lowndes County. One, you have the symbol of the Black Panther that becomes the iconic symbol for the Black Power era. It's adopted by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale as they create their local civil rights, their local freedom organization, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And that happens in October of 1966. But, there, but it also serves as the inspiration for a number of other Black Power creations. There's a Black, there's a Black, Black Panther creations. There's a Black Panther organization uh, that comes in New York. There's Black Panther organizations that are aspired uh, that come in Los Angeles, California. The one that lasts and rises to sort of the top, if you will, is the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. And there's there's a reason why, just as you said, the sort of the resonance of the symbol. Cats, as they would say, cats are peaceful animals, but when they're backed up into a corner, uh, they come out fighting for life or death. And Stokely Carmichael said, look, that's the situation that Black people find themselves in. Backed up in a corner, and we're coming out fighting for life or death. So that symbol really resonated. I think two things are important to point out, too. One, that Lowndes County, Alabama doesn't just give birth to the Black Panther. It gives birth to Black power. And the, 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 the idea, the concept of Black political empowerment, uh, Black consciousness connect, collect, connected to uh, organizing for Black self-determination, creating all Black independent parties where Black people are a majority, political entities, and creating uh, all Black uh, bases of strength in those places where they are a numerical minority. It was a very concrete vision uh, for what black power meant that Stokely Carmichael would in, um, um, in June of 1966 introduced to the nation during the James Meredith March. And Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Toure, was the lead organizer in Lowndes County, Alabama. The, the, the Lowndes County Freedom Organization, LCFO, does not happen without the vision uh, energy and work of, of Stokely Carmichael in partnership with SNCC organizers. So not only does Lowndes County give us the original Black Panther Party, not only does it give us the Black Panther symbol, the iconic symbol for the Black power era that resonates with people far beyond the rural South, but it also gives us Black power. So in a very real way, that which we associate most with, with the urban spaces 
uh, of uh, of the black freedom struggle, like black power and the Black Panther Party, both had deep Southern roots. Absolutely. Okay, so we have a question here. Why do you think the Alabama connection to the origin of the Black Panther Party has been so buried or maybe forgotten? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think one has to do with how we have misremembered Black power. We remember Black power as being solely an urban phenomenon. Uh, this is something that happens in New York and Detroit uh, and an urban northern phenomenon, urban western phenomenon in Oakland, California and Los Angeles. And we don't think about it as being equally uh, having roots in actually having its origin in the South, but having roots even during the height of the Black power era in the South. So we train our lens away. Civil rights and marching and nonviolence happens in the South. Right. The that, that black power radical stuff happens someplace else. That's a false dichotomy. It's a false, a false division. If we see black power as a logical extension of the work that was going on in places like Lowndes County, Alabama, then we would train our eye back to Alabama. We wouldn't look away and then we would recognize and see the connections. All right. Let's see what our next question is here. The voting rights movement has again taken hold in the South. I think of Georgia and Stacey Abrams. Could the South's place in the forward movement of our nation be swallowed again? Or might there be a different energy around giving the South its flowers, so to speak? Hmm. I think it depends. It totally depends on how we understand what it is that people are trying to do. If, if in the, one of the critical lessons to come out of the civil rights movement we're talking about with SNCC and the, the Southern Civil Rights Movement in particular, SNCC and SCLC and the Congress of Racial Equality Corps, is they were not just interested in mobilizing voters. They weren't just interested in political mobilization. They were interested in political education. They were interested in activating voters and having them become a part of the political process. If we do not see uh, sustained engagement of black voters, whether it's in Georgia or Alabama or any place, South Carolina, North Carolina, wherever it is, if you do not see sustained engagement, if this is just about knocking on doors to try to get them to come out on election day and not having them be a part of the conversation and creating and creating uh, legislation and talking to them and getting their ideas for what needs to be done in society, then they will not be a, a, a stronghold. You will not see black voters uh, being able to turn out, turning out in, in large numbers and swaying elections. Part of what we saw in Georgia and what made, made that transition so powerful is it didn't just happen overnight. That doesn't happen by showing up the day before the election. That is creating an organizing infrastructure to reach people and then getting those people involved in the political process. And if you don't stick with that, it can backslide very easily. And so part of that work and sustaining that work is getting people involved and then keeping them involved by giving them something to do. That is something that can happen throughout the South, but you got to put in that time, the time and resources in order to do it. And our next question is, in what ways are the Democratic Party of 1966 different or similar to the Democratic Party of today? Well, it's fundamentally different. Uh, the Democratic Party of 1966, really the mid-1960s, 1964, 1965, 1966, was a completely different party because it was still a party that had Southern segregationists. Those who were animated by white supremacy were still deeply embedded in the Democratic Party. But because the National Democratic Party, this is really a Southern Democrats, because the National Democratic Party led by Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, had embraced a civil rights, voting rights platform that aggrieved white Southerners who were like, how dare you? I mean, these are Southerners, Southerners uh, who are trying to maintain segregation and white supremacy. And so they're, they're alienated by white Democrats uh, coming out of the North and elsewhere who are embracing the civil rights platform. And so what happens? Richard Nixon comes up and his people come up with this Southern strategy, which is a fancy way of saying they were gonna reach out to the really racist white Southerners and say, hey, there's no home for you there. There's a home for you here. And so the deeply racist white Southerners over the next 15 years will migrate out of the Democratic Party because the Democratic Party had embraced, at least theoretically, at least theoretically and, and in terms of policy, although far from perfect, a democratic, inclusive, um, uh, a democratic and inclusive policies. And the Republican Party was like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. You can come on over here. 
That's why in 1980, when Ronald Reagan decides to announce his bid for the presidency of the United States, governor, former governor of California, he doesn't do it in California. He goes to Neshoba County, Mississippi. Why the heck are you in Neshoba County, Mississippi? Ain't nothing in Neshoba County, Mississippi, except the fact that that's the county where three civil rights workers are murdered in 1964. And he's going there to the county fair to signal to white Southerners who were upset about the civil rights platform embraced by the National Democratic Party that I'm not going to play that game. You can come on over and we're not going to push that agenda, this democratic agenda. You can have a home here. So that that's the, the really the birth of the modern Republican Party that has been building, right? I mean, that's that's a white supremacist agenda, right? I mean, that's white, suprem white supremacy slash racism is the most powerful political organizing tool in American history. And we saw it deployed in 1980 and we saw it deployed in 2016. And it's a straight line from the voting rights campaigns and organizing of the mid-1960s up until what we saw January 6, 2021. So there is there is always a message there if we are careful to read it and to see Absolutely. it. Can you talk about the relationship between land ownership and political independence? The, you know, two of the most important determinants of sort of whether someone would participate in the freedom struggle was, if, if, especially if they were men, was whether or not they were veterans and had participated in the war, World War, World war II or Korean War, even earlier, World War I, or if they were landowners. Land ownership gave African-Americans, men and women, a greater degree of independence and autonomy. They weren't free. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of ironic, right? Because it also made you a target. If you were a black landowner, you also, and, and were able to sort of demonstrate this sense of independence that also put a target on your back because that undermined the very notion of black inferiority and white supremacy. So it, was, it wasn't, it was difficult to live, right? It was dangerous to be independent but it also meant that you weren't as dependent upon white people and, 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 and were able to do more things and, and, and allow people to stay in your house and in your apartments, in, in your, on your property, than folk who lived on white folks' land and were, were more dependent on the will and whim of white folk in order to survive. So the creation of that land ownership gave people more independence. And, and many of those folk who had that independence then use that for the benefit of the movement. Let's see. Okay, I think we have time for one more question and, um, and then we'll, we'll close out our program for this evening. This next question is, John Hewlett is a fascinating figure. Uh, curious that he remained a distinctly local figure. Was he ever tempted to move on from Lowndes County and join the national civil rights movement? Well, John Hewlett has an interesting um, political arc. Uh, and one of the things that wound up limiting, and it's curious to see if he did have sort of aspirations uh, beyond sort of local politics, being sheriff and probate judge, they never really articulated it as such. Uh, but in the early 1970s, um, he aligns himself with George Wallace uh, and he becomes part of a, uh, um, a, a faction of black Democrats uh, including some coming out of Macon County and Tuskegee that will align themselves with George Wallace. That did not play outside of, so that, that did not play well within the civil rights community, certainly even in Alabama, but certainly outside of Alabama. So that right there really limited uh, what he could do outside of the state of Alabama, outside of that small place in Lowndes County, Alabama, where he had exercised considerable power as a black sheriff and then the black probate judge even if he wanted to move beyond that. And it's really, there's really no signs that he ever had aspirations to become a national civil rights figure. When he gets in the movement, he's really doing it uh, for local people um, and then sacrificing a lot. You know, what happens later on is a little bit different than where, where he ends up in a different place uh, than where he began. Hey, Dr. Jeffries, I think I would like to, to give you the, the last word in this, in the sense of, you know, looking at, um, the lessons that we can learn from our uh, 
successes and maybe some of the shortcomings that we yeah. uh, endure during the period of what we call the movement. Um, what are some of those lessons that you can make us aware of? There, there's a number of lessons. I think one very important lesson is we have to be careful as black folk not to overinvest in electoral politics in the sense that voting and voting rights and participating in political process is absolutely essential to creating change. But in and of itself, it is not enough. There has to be substantial economic change and there has to be grassroots pressure to make those who are elected to office to do the things that they were sent to office to do. So one, can't overinvest in electoral politics. You have to keep doing other things. Two, you have to keep pressure on elected officials. It is not enough to send them to the county courthouse or the state house or, or even to the White House and say, OK, our job is done. Carry on, carry forth. You have to keep their feet to the fire to make sure that their interests remain aligned with yours, uh, the people on the ground. And I think that's one of the key lessons. And that's hard to do because that's why social movements are so hard to sustain because they take so much energy and time. That's why what we saw in, in Georgia was so incredible that they're doing this for four and five and six years because that takes so much work and yet they sustained it. But that's the kind of work that we need. So if Stacey Abrams, for example, decides to run for governor again, uh, great, fantastic. She's really you know, demonstrated you know, that where she is and that she's for the people. But once she's in office, you got to treat her like everybody else. You got to make sure that we hold her accountable. That is critical. Nobody gets a pass, uh, no matter who they are, of what they've done uh, when they are trying to, so that we make sure uh, that they remain beholden to our interests. Excellent. Well, I want to bring uh, Ashley Jones back on. She's going to give us a poem to close out our evening, and then we will wrap up uh, today's uh, episode. Ms. Jones? Thank you. Um, this has been such an interesting conversation. Um, for sure. And I wanted to end with a piece that sort of talks about um, the ideas that you just mentioned, Dr. Jeffries, about the work that has to be done um, and sustaining that work. Although I am not a politician and hopefully never will be a politician, okay, um, I am a poet um, and that is a part of my activism. And it is sometimes hard to sustain being so vocal about, um, you know, the people and Black issues. And so this poem talks about um, an experience in which I did face some of that discrimination that, um, not the same as of course what happened in Lowndes County, but some suppression. And it also talks about how black people um, in general have been um, cut off at every turn um, throughout history, which is again, sort of what y'all talked about. Um, it's called Poem in Which I'm Too Political to Read at Your School um, because I was invited to read at a school. And then I think they looked me up and realized who I was, and hopefully y'all know what I mean when I say that, who I was, um, and uninvited me because my poetry was too political. So I attempted to write a piece that was totally non-political until it is political, and I think you'll, you'll pick up on it. Poem in which I am too political to read at your school. A rose, single, silent, and soft, opens. Red petals, tender, innocent, fragrant. What beauty? How holy, peace unbroken in the rose's solid stem. Oh, ancient wonder, rose of unsullied joy, I sing to the majesty of your sun-loved face, your color so pure, petal fine as wing, leaf's thin veins a natural puzzle of lace. Even your thorns are worthy of my praise, their spikes but soldiers keeping you from harm. A stab could set my fingers all ablaze, but still your grace would silence all alarm. Except the rose was black and you killed it, black and you silenced it, black and it could not vote, black and it got in the wrong garden so you had to use pesticide, had to poison its water and all the little black rose babies, had to stop teaching it to read. It was black so you pulled it up by the roots with a knife shaped just like America, just like the government, just like white Jesus just like your mouth leaking, bless your heart. You severed its roots and you chewed them whole and you smiled as it withered, searching for home. Totally non-political poem right there. <laughs> completely, completely non-political. Dr. Jeffries, are you aware of any voter suppression tactics mm. that are being deployed today mm -hmm. that may even reflect you know, this period that we've gone through. I, I really think 
I want you to kind of speak on that briefly, and then um, and then we'll close out the program for this evening. Can you do that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, and the absolutely isn't just can I do it. The absolutely is that the voter suppression tactics that are facing Black communities and including rural counties like Lowndes County, Alabama, are very real, and they are connected to a long history of post-1965 voter suppression activities. See, before 1965, it wasn't about voter suppression, it was about voter exclusion. You literally could exclude entire populations. After 1965, with the Voting Rights Act, one, it's impossible to exclude whole populations, but you also don't need to anymore. All you have to do is make it more difficult for a handful, a few thousand, 10,000, 500 people here, 1,000 here, 10,000 people there, and then you can win a national election. And so we see that with the closing of polling places and polling sites, making it more difficult for people to actually cast ballots on election day, requiring voter identification, and then knowing that folk don't have driver's license and, and, and the only place where you can get the voter ID is to go to a DMV, but you've also closed the DMVs. Uh, reducing the number of election, uh, early election sites and early election days. All these are tactics designed to make it more difficult for people of color, in particular, poor folk, older folk who we know vote in higher numbers to cast ballots on election day or to cast ballots in an election. So these are voter suppression tactics that are very real. These are voter suppression tactics that are actually becoming more predominant not just in states that used to be covered by the Voting Rights Act, but I'm in Ohio, we see them in Ohio, next door in Indiana and the like. And so it is really a conservative phenomenon, politically conservative phenomenon, and it is spreading and it is real. And we have to be aware of it because just think about how close these elections are. 11,000 votes in Georgia. I mean, that, and, and, and it's not just Georgia, right? North Carolina and all these other places. And so we have to remain vigilant uh, because the the effort and the desire to shrink the electorate is there and it's real and it hasn't gone away. And so part of being vigilant, and we can't rely on the courts to provide us any real help. So part of being being vigilant remains identifying and calling it out and organizing actively against it. We want to be on the side of the of the people, of the party of the people who want to expand the electorate. That's what any democratic uh, loving person should want to do, regardless of who people are. Well, you want to expand the electorate and we want to pursue policies that do just that. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Jeffries. It has been a pleasure to have this conversation with you tonight. I want to uh, thank you again for being here with us. Um, at, when I get to the end of these uh, conversations, sometimes I wish I had more time. Uh, so hopefully there'll be an opportunity for us to do that uh, sometime in the near future. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And Ashley, of course, it's always a pleasure having you here. Your poems are always spot on. Mm. Uh, thank you for sharing with us. You've been listening to Why It Matters, Black Alabamians in the Vote, presented by the Alabama Humanities Alliance and funded by the Why It Matters Civic and Electoral Participation Initiative, administered by the Federation of State Humanities Councils and funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. I'm your host, Tanya Scott-Williams. Thanks for listening. To learn more about the Alabama Humanities Alliance, go to alabamahumanities.org.